Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church up in Grays Lake, Illinois. I'm delighted to be back with you today. We have another great episode lined up for you. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Welcome back, Jared. It's good to have you again. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. Uh, we also have with us uh, Dr. Jim Cassidy, who is an associate pastor at, uh, at an OPC church in Pflugerville, Texas. He's also planting a church in South Austin. Welcome back, Jim. It's good to have you as well. It's good to be here, as always, Camden. Yes. Uh, how did the worship service go, Jim? You had one recently. Uh, yeah, going we had well our, in Austin? Yeah, we had our first worship service this past Lord's Day on July 27th, and uh, it was it went very well. Uh, we praised the Lord for a, a good showing, a good attendance, uh, and a, a good worship service overall. So we also had uh, Sunday school, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm teaching through the Westminster Confession of Faith right now. So that was well attended, and uh, got some good feedback. So uh, we're very thankful. Good, good. It's great to hear. Uh, we're also very, very pleased to welcome to the program for the very first time our Special guest today, Dr. Marcus Peter Johnson, who is Associate Professor of Theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome to the program, Marcus. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, Marcus is the author of a book titled One with Christ, An Evangelical Theology of Salvation. It's published by Crossway very recently in 2014. Uh, and as you would guess, it, it deals with the subject of union with Christ. Uh, it's a wonderful book. We're going to open that up today and talk about all the themes therein, uh, as well as uh, the state of union with Christ, uh, the doctrine that is, in evangelicalism, as well as in Reformed churches. We're going to unpack that as we open up this wonderful book. But before we do so, we do have a few things to mention. First, that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to pr- help us produce and distribute all of our programs for of charge. I would encourage you to visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate if you're able to pledge your support. I want to thank everybody that has been a contributor, especially recently. We've had, as I keep mentioning, more and more uh, monthly donors, and we thank you for those. Uh, We're really looking forward to some new projects and things that we have up our sleeve, uh, one of which is a little project we call Reformed Academy. You can follow us online on Twitter at Reformed Academy for some updates on that. But that's just one thing we have up our sleeves, a lot of really great things going on, and we want to be able to help people grow deeper in their understanding of God's truth in Scripture. Uh, One way we hope to do that is with our Fall Theology Conference. Uh, We're very excited about that as well. We had a successful Indiegogo campaign to raise uh, the minimum funds that we needed to be able to uh, get everyone out here. We're having Dr. Scott Oliphant and Dr. Lane Tipton come as plenary speakers for our first theology conference, something we hope could turn into a regular occurrence. It's going to be held in Grays Lake, Illinois, uh, at the church where I serve, October 10th through 12th. And we have opened up registration now uh, to people. So if you weren't able to uh, support us through the Indiegogo campaign, you can still now uh, attend the event. You can register for it at reformedforum.ticketleap.com. If you go there, you'll see the event, the Reform Forum 2014 Theology Conference, and you can get tickets. But you want to sign up soon so that you make sure you get your seat because the seats are limited. It's going to be a small micro-conference on purpose so that we have a lot of interaction between the guests and the speakers. Uh, and uh, you can get your spot today and sign up for the breakout sessions, which also have limited seats. So if you want to make sure you have your choice of breakout session, 
check us out online, reformedforum.ticketleap.com. Jim, you also have something to mention. Yeah, I wanted to announce that Providence Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Pflugerville, Texas, will be hosting a conference on Reformed theology at the end of September, September 26th and September 27th. Um, We should have a website up live pretty soon, uh, probably connected with the Providence website. Uh, So stay tuned. Um, If you live in the Austin, uh, the greater Austin area, uh, where Providence is, it's just outside of Austin in the town of Pflugerville. Um, We want to welcome you. We want to invite you to come. We have uh, several speakers. The local pastors will be speaking, including myself and Glenn Clary. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of you know Glenn for his work on Reformed worship. Uh, Alan uh, Story, who is the senior pastor at the Providence Church, will also be speaking. Uh, he is uh, he has his PhD from Westminster on the theology of Jonathan Edwards, and so um, you'll enjoy uh, getting to hear him. And uh, one of our keynote speakers we're bringing in is Dr. Hughes Oliphant Olt, uh, who's going to come and speak on that Saturday morning on the history of Reformed worship. Uh, many of you may be familiar with uh, Dr. Olt's work in both preaching and Reformed worship. Uh, he is uh, uh, arguably, uh, but I don't think it's much of an argument, the world's <laughs> leading scholar uh, on the in the area of Reformed worship and preaching. So uh, please uh, put that on your calendar if you could come out, join us for that conference. We'd love to have have you. Yeah, no, we really encourage you to visit uh, them online for that. We'll try to place links to those things in the episode description. Uh, it's very uh, apropos that we talk about Reformed worship uh, because uh, Marcus's book here, when we get toward the end of it, deals a lot with sacramental theology, especially uh, the mystery of the church in Christ uh, and how uh, the sacraments um, really are a special way in which a union with Christ is demonstrated and really strengthened. So, uh, we're going to get to that, but first, uh, before we, you know, get into the the nuts and bolts and details of your book, Marcus, um, I'd like to just remind people that we have had a review of this. Uh, I I did a very brief review of the book on our other program, Reformed Media Review. Uh, many people who may have gone to the Desiring God Conference for Pastors back in February would have received a free copy of this book. So if you haven't been diligent to look through your bags. Uh, and and know all the wonderful books you got, well, this is probably at the top of the list there. So pick up a copy. You might already have one. If you don't have one, pick up a copy of this book from WTSbooks.com or Amazon or wherever you uh, find good Reformed books because it's one that you're going to want to read. Marcus, how, how did you become interested in the academic study of the doctrine of union with Christ? You know, it's clearly something that's important as we're connected to and and united to our Savior, but how did you first become interested in the academic study? How did you, how were you first introduced to it? Uh, Probably in graduate studies. I mean, I I, uh, encountered uh, first Luther and then Calvin in uh, undergraduate studies, probably something like a history of doctrine class here Mm -hmm. at Moody Bible Institute. Uh, And they, you know, knocked me out of my theological chair, I guess you could mm-hmm. say, and I just became fascinated with learning more and more about what they said, their love for Jesus Christ, Christ's love for them. Jesus Christ was so real to them, um, and it really um, um, proved a point of passion for me. I wanted to uh, trace down uh, how it is that they understood um, God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ, um, so intriguing for me. So in my later graduate studies, as I pursued more and more and read more and more, um, obviously you're dragged into the... Um, secondary literature, um, mm-hmm. and the scholars, the theologians who write about such things, and so it remained a point of uh, fascination and study for me. 
Wonderful. Now, people should notice, as Marcus has mentioned, he did uh, some graduate work at, at uh, well, did, you, did you do your undergraduate at Moody and then your graduate work at Trinity? Uh, undergraduate at Moody in Bible and Theology, then an um, MA at um, TEDS, Trinity Evangelical yes. Divinity School, and mm-hmm. then on to uh, University of Toronto for the PhD. Yeah, that's very fascinating because um, many people might not know this, but uh, another man who's done wonderful work on union with Christ, he hasn't published much on it, but that's uh, Dr. Robert Strimple. He also did his PhD at Toronto. It's fascinating to me because it's a Catholic school, isn't it? Or at least has a Jesuit faculty uh, in theology. Uh, well, the, yeah, there's a school of theology there at the University of Toronto. The Toronto School of Theology is composed mm-hmm. of um, seven schools that have wow. um, divinity schools. So they're, um, it's a consortium, actually. I see. And, um, one or maybe two of the schools, now I forget, it's been a while, but one, at least one of the schools is Jesuit, but they also have a, a Presbyterian school, um, a Roman Catholic, um, Evangelical, Anglican, etc. Wow. wow, that's interesting. Well, it's fascinating to see how, how you were able to do this study there and eventually uh, produce uh, this wonderful book, which is not your dissertation, but of course on the same subject. Um, why do you think this uh, topic has experienced such a resurgence in the last decade or so? We see uh, several books on the subject. This one, of course, is warranted and unique. Um, but why do you think over the last 10 years, uh, Union with Christ has come up, especially in Calvin studies? That is an excellent question. We discussed it briefly a few weeks ago, if I remember, mm-hmm. Camden, and um, it's tough for me to say, probably in part because of the work of people like um, Richard Gaffin and Lane Tipton. I'm, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised, in part. Um, let's see. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't know how to trace down um, historical reasons. Mm-hmm. Historical reasons for that exactly. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if we can speak about an openness on the part of. Um, you know, uh, people in the um, Reformed Church that are that are more open to something like union with Jesus Christ, or um, people are reading Calvin in a different way with a different kind of sensitivity right. than they have in the past. It would be difficult for me to say. Yeah, I don't know myself either. I I, I would suspect, and you know, it, for some reason, it seemed to fall off uh, the theological world after the Puritans. Uh, the Puritans, you know, talked about union with Christ quite a bit, just like they talk about adoption, and that kind of disappeared for a while too. But uh, maybe there are a bunch of different reasons, no single reason why Union with Christ has had some what of a resurgence. But um, no doubt it has, and uh, we're yeah. thankful that it has. <laughs> yeah, it's been interesting to watch kind of on this side because, I mean, my interest in particular definitely dovetails with your book and trying to trace out the the historical precedent. In one sense, it's centuries, but outside of kind of a niche within the reform community, it just hasn't been on the forefront of a lot of people. So I'm just echoing the same point, but it has been interesting to watch other, uh, even traditions, add to the conversation and different theological takes on on the topic as a whole. Yeah, and and we might not find the language union with Christ in other traditions, you know, verbatim, but we certainly find themes that that go in different directions. That's one thing I wanted to ask you, Mark, is how has union with Christ or similar doctrines been characterized by different theologians in different traditions? You clearly address many of them in the book, but uh, what are some other views on the subject that you survey? In the Protestant tradition you're speaking of? Or, or in any tradition, a Roman Catholic, Eastern, however you might find it, um, you know, just broadly considered being united to Christ in one way or another. How has that idea been characterized in Christianity? Sure, yeah, great question. Um, you would expect it to be present in most of the traditions because of its pervasiveness in the, um, you know, um, 
in the apostolic witness, the biblical witness. Uh, and it's exactly what you find. Um, union with Christ, communion with Christ. I mean, in fact, the Reformers had all sorts of different ways about talking about being joined to Jesus Christ. Uh, Calvin's language alone, he uses, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 different ways of talking about being implanted into Christ or conjoined to him. And um, uh, Luther talks about uh, much about being or clinging to Jesus Christ and, uh, and becoming one with him. Uh, in... Um, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, of course, you're probably familiar with the notion of theosis, sometimes um, um, talked about in terms of something like divinization, probably mm-hmm. better talked about in terms of theosis, mm-hmm. participation in the life of God through Jesus Christ. So you see the notion of theosis really um, prominent in Eastern Orthodox soteriologies and, and theologies, um, which bring up the notion of communion with Jesus Christ, to be sure. And the notion is... Um, um, I should say the concept and indeed the reality of being united to Jesus Christ is also um, pervasive in the Roman Catholic tradition, as you might expect um, from the very, very earliest uh, writers. Um, um, you can imagine it because of their um, their doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Um, transubstantiation has a um, sort of a obvious corollary with and insistent yeah. on uh, being really and truly joined to and partaking of Jesus Christ, even if it does have some deficiencies there problematic. Um, no doubt it's in the um, historical Roman Catholic tradition as well. I suppose also with beatific vision uh, in their version or notions of glorification, there's a heavy emphasis on union in, in some way, too. No doubt. And yeah, the doctrines of baptism and um, uh, sacramental grace, it's all of the, if you will, the machinery is there. And so it's, um, it, it lies underneath and all around Roman Catholic teaching in many ways. Even if, like I said, sometimes... Uh, I like to think the Reformers improved upon the, oh, sure. um, their, their notions of uh, union with Jesus Christ in so many ways. Maybe we'll talk more about that shortly. Yeah, there are a couple elements that you mentioned. One is the scope of union with Christ. And again, this is kind of following up on what you just mentioned. Um, how is the scope of union with Christ different from the nature of union with Christ? Do you want to unpack those those distinctions a little bit? Um, sure. Uh, the, when I talk about in the book the scope of union with Jesus Christ, um, really, uh, my book, it's, what is it, it's over 200 pages, but it's, it has to narrow down on some level because um, the scope of this reality in, in scriptures is so large. Um, uh, it, the pages could have been expanded. It feels like um, <laughs> um, ad infinitum. Yeah. So it was narrowed down to, you know, our experience of union with Jesus Christ in our historical present, you know, existence. But in Scripture, of course, we have um, uh, believers uh, being talked about um, in Jesus Christ before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1. Um, and then surely in the Incarnation we have this God becoming one with uh, humanity or human nature, and that's surely already bespeaking a kind of union with Jesus Christ, at least a human um, Godward relation. Um, and then, uh, besides the uh, fact of um, our being united to Jesus Christ by the Spirit and through faith, um, Scripture talks about our um, awaiting, um, a consummation uh, of our union with Jesus Christ uh, for eternal and everlasting uh, life in our resurrection. So the, the scope is enormous, and you know, in a in a book of this size, you couldn't talk about all of it. So. I narrow down on what we might call the soteriological elements of union with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And would you be able to unpack for us then the nature of that union as you talk about it in the book, its Trinitarian nature, et cetera, et cetera? 
Sure. I think it's um, uh, maybe the most important part of the discussion. I think it'll probably come up over and over um, in our discussion. It's, um, there are many people who speak about being united to Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't know many people, uh, many Protestant Christians who have given much thought to uh, Christian theology or salvation who would deny that we're joined to yeah. Jesus Christ in some sense. The question is, what is the nature of that union? What do we mean when we're saying we're joined to him? Joined in what way or how? Um, and so I take um, a fair bit of time in the chapter to talk about what do we mean when we say union with Christ? That is, what, does this, what do the scriptures mean there? What has um, been the confession of the uh, Protestant evangelical Reformed churches on this matter? Because whatever we say about the nature of our union with Jesus Christ will determine how we speak about um, um, no doubt how we're related to him, but then all the benefits we participate in being joined to him. And so my book is largely about that. So I start off with a, a description of the nature of that union. And I, as you say, um, start off by talking about how the nature of the union is Trinitarian. That is, um, we're, we're united to Jesus Christ um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, we share in uh, the Father's uh, love and love and life with his son through the spirit so it's a trinitarian relationship that we enter into by being united to jesus christ one of the most staggering um disclosures or um of, of the gospel and the scriptures if you ask me yeah. um i go on to talk about the um intimate language it's used there in scripture um that it's an intensely intimate and personal union we have with jesus christ it's a real and true union it's not a metaphorical union it's not a merely legal union although it has legal elements it's not merely a union of friendships or of wills and it's not merely although it has a contractual element it's certainly not merely that it is a it's a real union between the person of jesus christ and the um, person of those who have been joined to him um through faith and by the power of the spirit and so the, I use some of the um, scriptural uh, uh, imagery there to talk about how intimate and how real this union with him is. Um, in order to set up um, the rest of the book, I, had, I think it has an, an enormous impact on the way we view um, um, salvation in Jesus Christ. And so then I also use Calvin and Luther and others, some of the Reformed confessions who describe that um, union in incredibly vital, intimate um, uh, personal sorts of ways uh, to make that point early in the book because I think it's so important. And then I also discuss matters of um, um, what the union with Jesus Christ is not. Um, yeah, that it's that's not very what we. Yeah, I, I I thought it was important because it was important for me in my own uh, education um, and theological. I think maturing that. Um, well, uh, we can't reduce union with Christ to something like my faith experience, which a lot of people do. Hmm. Uh, we can't reduce um, union with Jesus Christ to um, sentiment or um, uh, moral alignment and, and these sorts of things. So I discuss that in the book in order to make that as clear as possible from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned, I think it's, it's important to note that uh, from the beginning, you, you mentioned that um, this is something that is obviously unpacking union is just unpacking what scripture teaches, and particularly in Paul. Um, you mentioned that the phrase in him, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, that language occurs over 160 sometimes just in Paul. So, um, just kind of backtracking a little bit because union can kind of be a, a fuzzy word, and so I think. Part of you know the, the impetus uh, for us is actually unpacking that, and that's what we're doing. Um, but just just noting here that it's arising out of scripture, and so that's what we're elaborating on. 
Absolutely. Thanks for yeah. That that needs some constant emphasis that um, this isn't a theological concept drummed up by people with you know in ivory towers. It's it's an explication right. of scripture. No, I, I really appreciated that, especially the way you talk about what union is not. Um, the major uh, chapter that comes after that section in your book is a very helpful one on sin and the incarnation. And you really begin there by laying the foundation for how we are to understand uh, Jesus Christ taking on a human nature. But you do so by bringing up the problem of original sin. And I think this is a, a really interesting and um, maybe the most unique part of your book. Uh, and, and that's where you start to discuss the differences between what you term federalism, realism, and then you offer this notion of Christological realism. Uh, could you explain those views? I know we've had some listeners uh, sending us emails asking us to, to interview you, which I already had you on the schedule, of people wanting to hear you talk about these things. And I, I really think it's a really unique kernel of the book. But what do you mean in terms of uh, this taxonomy, federal realism, and then federalism, realism, and then your own Christological realism? Uh, federal. If we talk about the transmission or, or imputation of original sin, uh, that is our relationship to Adam, in which we come to be um, um, come to experience corruption and condemnation and estrangement um, in Adam, a condition in which we need salvation from Jesus Christ. What is the nature of our relationship to Adam, in which we are condemned and uh, corrupted um, and in need of salvation? It's traditionally been, at least in Reformed circles and textbooks, been understood either uh, under the rubric of federalism or realism. Federalism describing the nature of that relationship in, um, in let's say, mostly or typically legal and, and represent, uh, representational sorts of um, modes of thought or categories, where Adam stands in as the covenantal representative or legal representative, if you, if you will, or surety for the rest of mankind, so that his cond- um, whatever takes place um, um, in Adam's relation to God is, is, is imputed uh, in a legal and representative way to the rest of humankind, sort of framed along those lines. The other, um, um, the other explanation for understanding what is the nature of the relationship or how is it exactly that Adam's sin is transmitted to humankind has been realism, Trace back to, it's uh, usually called Augustinian re- realism, trace back to Augustine's thought, um, in which the nature of the relationship between um, uh, sinners or humanity and Adam is, um, just like the term says, more of a realistic in nature that all of humankind participates in and shares in the humanity of Adam. Um, the analogy there often used is that of an um, acorn and an oak tree. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. that there's an ontological relationship there that maintains, and as such, all that takes place in Adam takes place in the, in the rest of humanity. Um, and so these have been the two typical ways of describing that uh, relationship. Um, and and sometimes there's been a combination of the two of them in, in some Reformed theologians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I look at the two of those and sort of explain them, and then I ask if there might not be an improvement if we... Um, uh, started from, as we should do our theology, from a, uh, in a Christological, Christocentric sort of way, Christ being our true theology, if there's not a way that uh, we might understand our relationship to Adam in ways that retain what's really strong uh, there in the, the Federalist understanding of the imputation and transmission of original sin, um, and also what 
what seems very strong in the realist tradition, but doing it from a um, position and center in, um, in Jesus Christ, where we see that our, you know, Paul's um, analogy or corollary he draws in Romans 5 between our relationship to Adam, our being in Adam, mm-hmm. and our relationship to Christ being in Christ. Um, Paul has very little, the biblical writers have very little to say about, in one sense, very little to say about the nature of our relationship to Adam, much more to say about the nature of our relationship to the second or last Adam, Jesus Christ. So I thought, why not turn that around, describe what it means to be, um, or let our understanding of the nature of our union with Jesus Christ help to shape and um, form the way we think about our, the nature of our relationship to Adam and see what that does. Is that helpful for understanding the term transmission of original sin? And it, and it was, at least for me, so I'm trying to document that in that chapter. Yeah, and I thought it was thoroughly interesting. And, and um, listeners should know, Marcus and I have, have sat down, we had a great time, I had dinner and talked about a lot of these things face-to-face. So um, <clears throat> just thoroughly fascinating. I love that part of the book uh, because it was, it was challenging and, and uh, thought-provoking, and our conversation was even more so. Um, you know, one thing that, that I brought up to, to Marcus, and I'll bring, bring up now as we discuss it with the listener, is this notion of, of the realism, and especially when we get into incarnational union. Now, clearly, we are, in, you know, united to Christ in and through his incarnation. The question that comes up for us when we talk about sin and redemption is, first, what's the nature of the incarnation relative to all people? As if Christ takes on a human nature— um, does that somehow make him incarnationally united to every single individual? And then the second question for, for discussion, I suppose, would be, well, what does that mean in terms of, um, you know, everybody's sin? Uh, you know, is, is, is sin dealt with simply by Christ being incarnated and then he dies for sin in general? Or is there a specific covenantal relationship? Uh, Marcus, what what do you see here in terms of the role of the incarnation specifically in union with Christ, just as we start to unpack that difficult subject? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. I, I do think it is um, uh, one of the more provocative, um, um, how should we say it, realities that we deal with as we come to see um, uh, the uh, you know God becoming incarnate. What is the nature? As He takes on human flesh, what is the relationship of that? How far does that extend into salvation? How soon are we talking about salvation when we're talking about the incarnation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and what is the relationship of incarnation to, to salvation? So um, I bring it up briefly uh, on purpose, I guess you could say, if I can full disclosure here on the book. I wanted to keep it somewhat brief. I know a lot of people aren't really um, totally familiar. I didn't want to. Um, you know, uh, cause any undue confusion at this point. Um, um, not, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't know if this is the time to talk about a, a new book. A colleague and I have coming out. We're going to unpack this at some much yes, greater length. and we're looking That's forward to that. Of, uh, inc- it's going to be called the Incarnation of God coming up by Crossway in March. But in any case, not, that's not to shamelessly plug it, but we do get a lot more into all these matters, which you won't have as much time to discuss today. Mm-hmm. Um, I came to see, um, originally through Luther and Calvin, but later through someone may, may be talking about, Torrance, that a closer relationship between um, the accomplishment or, of redemption and the incarnation that I had before, um, coming to see Christ's whole life from um, from conception and birth all the way through his ascension as an as an atoning event, um, and so I and and 
and the strengths of that, I hope, that came out, even though I don't ex- explicitly talk about it all that much, the strengths it has for explaining all the benefits we have in being united to Jesus Christ, I think, are, um, are uh, I hope they become manifest in the work, but I think mm-hmm. they're all, but I think they're really, really helpful in that sort of a way. We're really looking forward to the other volumes where you can really, um, you know, treat things in a more substantial way. Not that the this treatment is lacking; it's just not the direct purpose of the book. And and right. and, and so, you know, the listeners should know that. Um, you know, the the issue here in terms of incarnational union, and and this this comes back to this this idea: what you're trying to do. You've got federalism and realism. Realism is is more the view that you have in. Older theologians like uh, W.G.T. Shedd, for instance, if somebody would like to read more about him. And it, and it has um, a lot to do with how uh, sin is Im- imputed to us. Is it immediate imputation? Is it immediate imputation? Uh, the listener might want to look some of that stuff up in a good systematic theology, and you'll learn an awful lot about it. Um, but the question that I have, and again, maybe there's no short answer, and maybe I'll have to wait till March for the new book, um, is that if... if um, Clearly, there has to be some sort of covenantal dimension or aspect to redemption. Uh, and the, the, the more pointed question I could say are, what would be the theological breaks on incarnational union that would prevent uh, a logical universalism? For instance, if we, if we took things very baldly, you could say, well, if Christ takes on human nature and uh, he's united to people through a human nature— and then because he has that human nature and he dies, he lives a perfect life, he dies on the cross and he's resurrected from the grave and therefore triumphs over all those that he represents through human nature, then what prevents the unbeliever from participating in that redemption because the unbeliever also has a human nature? That's just a question I threw out there, and I'm sure maybe Torrance has, has touched on this and... and uh, you know, other people have dealt yeah. with this too. It's it's one that could use uh, further development. Not only, not only. I mean, I'm saying in in the academy. That seems to be where the discussion needs to go, especially as Reformed theologians and evangelical theologians are coming into contact with Eastern notions of uh, theosis, as well as Roman Catholic notions of beatific vision. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a topic well worth um, looking further into. It's really the question of um, the, at least the. Protestant or Reformed age-old question of the extent of the atonement reversed into the question of the incarnation. Correct? Yeah, I think, think so. The, yeah, the extent of the atonement. You right. usually talk about in relation to the death of Jesus Christ. How far does His death, um, mm-hmm. you know, extend for for humanity? It's that question. If we're going to say that, well, there's more than His death involved in our redemption. I mean, from His very conception, He's He's um, you know uh, securing the salvation of humanity in Himself. Mm-hmm. Well, then we have to ask the question maybe even before His death: Who who is who, not only who has He died for, but who is He born for? Yes, yes, that's a much better um, way to put it. And it's a really it. in, really uh, in, intriguing question when we speak about Him assuming human nature. Everybody agrees on that. Who's human nature? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, how many humans should we should we speak of if we speak about Christ um, um, dying? For the elect chosen in Christ before the foundation of the Lord, can we speak of Christ assuming the humanity of the elect? Mm-hmm. I have yet to hear anyone say that. I've said it to myself before, trying to think if it sounds right, and it sounds sort of strange. It does, because we're all for humans. Those who, for those to hold to some, something like you know particular redemption, um, and and and, and, we, and then we go on to 
say something more than that, um, if you will, that um, Christ's incarnate life is in fact uh, atoning, then, then is, is that the sort of thing we should say? Or have we, have we reached, um, you know, uh, the um, edge of the mystery here that, you know, it, it's difficult to say that, um, that he dies. Is it as easy to say when he takes on the flesh of humanity that it's, it's only those he's in covenant with? That's one possible way to do it. That's, that's one of the ways that, um, you know, reformed folks have um, done it with lim- you know, limited atonement with respect to his death. So I'd like to hear what you guys uh, make of that. What does the incarnation, if we think of the incarnation as uh, inherently um, or intrinsically saving or atoning, obviously leading to his death and resurrection. What is the best way to speak about that? There's a Christological question that arises here as well. Um, You know, Torrance will talk about the vicarious humanity of Christ. Uh, That's that's what he is uniting himself to, is is he becomes human for humanity. So uh, he's shifting the vicarious atonement discussion, as you indicated before, uh, from his cross work, down to his incarnation. Um, and, and Torrance, along with Bart, of course, uh, are pretty unabashed to say th- things like, uh, you know, what Christ took upon himself in order to, in the incarnation, atone for the sins of humanity or for the sin of humanity. He takes upon himself some kind, in a qualified sense, some kind of a fallen human nature. So what are the implications, I guess my question is this, what are the implications for incarnational union, as you've begun to articulate it this way, for Christology and the nature of the humanity that Christ takes to himself? Absolutely. Fantastic question. Also has to lie right at the center of this discussion, is um, the nature of the humanity that he assumes. If we go back to the sort of famous dictum that you see um, uh, and Gregory of Nazianzus in his response to Apollon, uh, Apollinaris in the, um, uh, what is that, 4th century, am I right? Um, whatever. That's right. Not, what's, what's not whatever. assumed is not atoned what for. What isn't assumed isn't healed. And um, the assumption is what Christ doesn't assume in our human, or in taking on human nature, what he doesn't assume from us, he cannot heal. Um, for Apollinaris, that was the question of, um, did Christ assume a human, uh, a human or a fallen mind in, right. um, in the incarnation? And uh, Polinaris's problem with that was that he thought the human wa- mind was the seat of sin. That's where all sin originates, is from the mm. human mind, the reason, you know, the um, will, if you will. So um, Nazianzus' response essentially is, well, if that's where the seat of sin is in, human, in humanity, then he must assume a fallen human mind. What it, because whatever yeah. isn't assumed isn't healed. So at least Nazianzus there is working with a you know incarnational notion of uh, salvation or redemption, in which Christ must assume what needs to be healed, what needs to be sanctified, what needs to be justified, um, and take it upon himself in an act of atonement, healing, justification, and sanctification. So that from the very beginning of Christ's assumption of our human nature, he's healing it, he's saving, making atonement um, and reconciliation between God and man. So um, something like a vicarious humanity of Jesus Christ, or, or atoning incarnational atonement, or in, incarnational reconciliation or redemption, essentially, I think, I think it's fair to say that it requires that, that um, uh, we begin to think of Christ assuming uh, the condition in which we actually exist as, as sinners, um, 
has fallen. I think um, what struck me as we're as we're talking about this uh, was something that you said in the beginning, just to even start off your book, was uh, that the the current conversation in evangelicalism on salvation um, is usually pretty limited. Either it focuses on one aspect like justification or atonement in general, and doesn't really unpack that, and has uh, maybe like a unifaceted. Um, tone to it. And the reason I mentioned that is because in our current conversation, I think you rightly mentioned the crucial important distinction of redemption accomplished and, and redemption applied. Mm-hmm. And on, on this topic in particular, I immediately go to 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is talking about not only just the incarnation, but let's talk about Christ's death. If Christ's mm-hmm. death had been accomplished, but his resurrection hadn't, Paul has very strong language there that you know, preaching is in vain, faith is in vain. Basically, without the resurrection, you don't have redemption accomplished in that sense. So, um, I say that again, just there are so many facets to this redemption accomplished package that if you yes. take one element out, it's going to change the entire structure. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely. I totally agree. I think sometimes... Um uh, if there's a neglect, when I don't, you know, it, it's tough to say. You can't speak for any. Uh, I can't speak for any particular person or any group as a whole. But when you speak about um, incarnation and start to think about it in more robustly sociological or redemptive terms, um, I think it's thought there could be a concern. And I'm not sure this is what you're thinking about, Jared, but there could be a concern that um, will there be a, then a lesser emphasis on death and resurrection? And I don't see why. It seems to me that if we speak about um, the atonement um, uh, beginning and start, you know, beginning to take place in the conception and birth of, G- of Jesus Christ, that it leads inexorably to his death and resurrection as the climax of uh, his sanctifying and justifying of our uh, humanity, being the bearer of our sins, and um, without which death, death and resurrection, uh, the incarnation would be, you know, meaningless. And yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of my point. Is the the incarnation can't be talked about without the death, burial, and resurrection, all the other Absolutely. elements that are mentioned within Scripture. And then on the other side of applied, uh, you don't have all those elements together without um, union, and then the benefits flowing from that: justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. So that that was Absolutely. really my point that all these were connected. Great point. Sometimes the incarnation, if you think about it in a it's more limited sense. Merely the taking on the best, we're thinking, uh, the flesh of um, humanity, flesh and blood of humanity. We're thinking merely of something like his birth. Uh, mm-hmm. But incarnation, this broader sense, this whole incarnate uh, life, death, and resurrection and ascension. I should add. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a, there's an important point here that needs to be you know highlighted, and and it's that the suffering, and I think this is where you're going with this, and, and theologically, it's very important. The the suffering of Christ does not begin at the cross. I mean, his entire life as a life of, to use the language of our catechism, is a life of humiliation. Uh, mm-hmm. The suffering... He's born under the law. Mm-hmm. He's, he's born under the law, born of a virgin. He's, he is born in a manger. Um, he's humiliated from the very beginning. He is made to, uh, uh, to become tempted uh, under Satan in the wilderness as he goes 40 days and 40 nights fasting. I mean, Fasting is a form of suffering, 
um, I can't fast more than five hours before I'm starting to get cranky. <laughs> you know, um, imagine forty days and forty nights, our Lord in the in the wilderness. Um, you know what suffering he must have endured there. So, so the entire life of our Lord is a is a life of suffering. Um, and it climaxes, of course, at the cross with his death and then his burial for three days. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's just a point I wanted to, you know, bring out and to emphasize. Uh, you know, of course, you know, the, I would want to make clear and articulate that the humanity, however, that he does take is not fallen humanity. It's sanctified humanity. It's a humanity which is not under, as it were, uh, it's not in and of itself under the curse apart from covenantal considerations mm. as the represented covenantal representative of the elect where he does come under the curse. Why? Because the elect's sin um, is imputed to him. It's not a sin that he owns as it were yeah. himself. Yeah. Well, that's what I'd say as well as, you know, to try to lay out the landscape of this and, you know, yes, we are talking about the gospel. The gospel is a is a manifold thing. First Corinthians fifteen one through eight, uh, Paul very succinctly describes what that is. And if if I were to paraphrase and summarize, it, it's Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sinners. And that for sinners is very important. But but we could back that up all the way to what we traditionally call the pactum salutis, that agreement between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to redeem yeah. a people to himself to themselves and um that's in that's the case in which the son agrees to take on human flesh for the purposes of this redemption that whole already has a covenantal cast it's it's covenantal in eternity with the pact absolutist but it's also covenantal now because jesus needs to fulfill covenantal obligations that were not fulfilled by adam and adam fell in sin and now christ needs to redeem his people from uh, the covenant of works or the covenant of creation, whatever you want to call it, and also mediate now a new covenant in his own blood, the new covenant. And so the incarnational union happens, and I think it, he's taking on human nature, and, and all human beings, whether saved or not saved, have a human nature. But I think it, it ends up having applicability and effectiveness for those that he represents covenantally. At least the, that, those would be kind of the, the tracks that I would try to develop a doctrine down myself, and those are the kind of uh, guidelines that I've used in some of the work that, I'm, that I did in my dissertation and some of the other stuff that I'd like to do. So I think maybe that's a helpful way to talk about atonement. You can't have an atonement without an incarnation because you can't die. Um, but also um, the atonement has significance uh, because he's a covenantal representative. That's why, you know, my blood can't be shed for anybody else because I'm nobody else's covenantal representative in that way. And and uh, there's nothing mystical, or I should say there's nothing metaphysically unique about uh, Adam's blood, for instance, or Adam's life, other than the fact that God established him as the covenantal head. And same same for Christ here, although he's he is metaphysically unique because he's a union of two natures in one person, so... That's just very interesting, uh, and I, I think your book, Marcus, is really uh, touching on some really fascinating things. I'm really looking forward to what's coming in March. Yeah, in fact, we have a. Um, um, I'm I'm so glad. I think it was Jim that just mentioned the the uh, lifelong suffering of Jesus yeah. Christ. Is that right? Yeah. Thanks so much. That needs to be so emphasized. I think in in our churches um, uh, uh, that the whole course of his life, he's. Um, 
uh, he's suffering, uh, we ought to, in order to reconcile and um, um, restore us unto God. I think it's so very, very important. You see it yeah. immediately in the in the uh, in the birth narratives in Scripture, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, in which he's he's rejected. He's not wanted. There's no one for him to lay his head. Um, and he's born in uh, um, really desperate and uh, grotesque sort of a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, God, uh, God has nowhere to lay his head. Really remarkable. I think from the very beginning, that's what's going on in Scripture. And I think it's, I'm glad you brought it up. Mm. As for, um, uh, if you don't mind me adding a quick word on what's called the assumption of fallen humanity. Yeah, I'd love to. Hear um, is uh, we have a chapter on purpose devoted that to our book. It's an entire chapter to that alone, looking at history and scripture on that point. Um, and to see that it's, it's actually more embedded in the Reformation tradition than many uh, have thought, even though it's, it's gaining sort of, I think of maybe a prominence because of uh, Bart affirms it and Torrance certainly affirms. I know Torrance a lot better than I do Bart, but um, that it's actually embedded in that tradition more than people might've thought. And, um, Definitely in Luther, uh, Abraham Kuyper, and you see elements of it uh, in Calvin as well when he speaks about the kind of humanity that Christ assumes. Uh, I'll leave that uh, to the later chapter. But in any case, one point worth bringing up, um, and I think you guys are hitting on it um, uh, and doing it well, is that um, the whatever gap, I don't know how to put this the right way, but whatever gap we create, however, however, whatever distance we create between Jesus Christ and our wickedness, our corruption, our fallenness at the point of the incarnation, that gap has to be made up for, if you will, later at some point in time. And it's usually done with um, uh, uh, a theology of imputation. Um, How do we get our sins over to Jesus Christ if he hasn't entered into our sinfulness or our wickedness or our corruption in a sinless way? That's important to point out. Nobody Nobody in the Christian tradition that I know of who spoke of Christ assuming fallen humanity ever spoke of that without the qualification that he sinlessly assumed our fallen human nature, uh, though that even if it does um, uh, anticipate or sort of uh, uh, bring about what seem like logical problems in our mind, he, he, Christ never sins himself. There's no question about that, um, that he, that all along, and assuming, for those who hold to him, assume, assuming a fallen human nature, that all along... Um, the course of his suffering and life and death and temptation, what he's doing is recapitulating humanity, to put it in the words of um, attributed to Irenaeus' theory of recapitulation. He's recapitulating humanity by sanctifying it all along the way. So he comes into contact with our sin in a real way, and our corruption in a real way, in order to turn it back, in order to cleanse it, in order to sanctify himself and us in him, something like John 17. But in any case, when and this, this is um, the point I was trying to get at, um, Whatever distance we remove Jesus Christ from our um, the depth of our condition and our sin, later on in our soteriology, we're going to have to deal with that distance, if you will. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just worth pointing out. And so concepts of imputation that become um, transactional or mechanistic or merely forensic um, need to transfer our sins to Jesus Christ. And the question is, when do we do it? At the point of the cross? At the at if we're doing the point of his suffering, like Jim said, we have to do that from the very beginning. So when is it that he really comes into contact, um, not just with our condemnation, which is um, so important an element of justification, when does he come into contact with our corruption? Because surely he needs to sanctify us. These sorts of questions come up, and doctrines of justification that are uh, rooted in a merely or largely or one-sidedly forensic sort of a way um, 
usually owe their existence to the fact that Christ has been kept at some level um, um, from the depths of our condemnation and corruption, and so needs to be made over to him and his righteousness made over to us in a way that isn't, how do I say this, ontorelational or personal or altogether intimate. Your covenant. That's I mean, a, we would a, personally would use the, the category of covenant to kind of help, you know, work that out, at least in our own tradition. Sure. The question, yeah, yeah. I, absolutely. And mm-hmm. done, done it in a very strong way. The question is, what's the nature of that covenant? Is right. It person, is it personal or more contractual? Is it more intimate or is it more, you know, I hate to use the word mechanistic. The question is, that, is the covenant founded on the person of Jesus, not just founded on him? Is the covenant essentially Jesus? His life, his satisfaction, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, or is it a, you know, um, a contract that he makes out with God that sort of um, that he can fill out um, in representation of us? So it's still back to the question yes. you asked earlier, Camden. What's the nature mm-hmm. of relationship to Adam and to Jesus Christ, and how do we, how does this, how do we, how does this play out, and then how does it, how does it come up later in our theology, or soteriologies, or ecclesiologies? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. It, yeah. That's right. I, the, the idea of covenant. Would I think I heard Jared say it? Yes, I mean it's it would be a both and uh, type of scenario, so that you know the, uh, the the forensic is certainly an element that's included, but it's also a very it's also very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in fact, the covenant is if we understand the nature of the covenant in its various forms, uh, so that within the Reformed tradition, for instance, they could talk. We could talk about the pactum salutis, right? The eternal mm-hmm. decree, the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, which is an inherently uh, personal covenant. I think Bart missed. Uh, something of that in his church dogmatics when he criticized it. Um, mm-hmm. So you so you have a you have an eternal relationship between the the father and the son. Uh, it's an eternal covenant between two persons on behalf of many persons, namely the elect. Um, so you know, is there? It, it's it's personal, but it's also it's legal, but it's more than legal. It's also familial as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, between a father and the son, there's a family relationship that obtains as well. Um, so, you know, you get the whole kit and caboodle, uh, sort of speak, with covenant. Um, but the one thing that, you know, th- that I think, um, you know, we need to understand is that with covenant, you get all of that. You get the forensic and you get the personal um, with a certain and very important ontological distinction when it comes to the incarnation, uh, an ontological distinction that would obtain between uh, Christ's humanity as an altogether uh, unique and original humanity um, and our own humanity, um, so that the Westminster Shorter Catechism could talk about the imputation of sin uh, this way, that it is imputed to all those who descend from Adam by how? By ordinary generation, right? So they understand that there's a distinction between the way in which Christ becomes incarnate. Uh, It's extraordinary uh, generation, as it were. Um, There is something by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit that exempts Christ from receiving that type of imputation of both guilt as well as corruption uh, from the sin of the original man. So uh, he's still the second man, uh, there, there is a there is a continuity of of, of nature, uh, but there's also an important distinction that's there by virtue of the way in which Christ has become uh, generated. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Really well said. And that, and then later that 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 his connection with our condemnation and corruption has to be sort of brought together, right? 
And normally that happens at the point of the cross, where his our sins are are laid upon him, or he takes upon mm-hmm. the iniquity of us all. Would, would you say that? He became right? sin. Right. The question is, when did he become sin? He has to become sin at some point, right? Is it? Mm. Are we sure. Talking how how early on, or how later on? If it's earlier on, it tends to be a, construed a bit more along ontological lines, even if the distinctions you say, which are crucially important, need to be maintained for sure. If it's yeah. later on, it tends to be, um, you know, transfer of our sins over to Christ, who doesn't share exactly the humanity we have, so to speak, at least not in its, in its fallen state. Right. Well, actually, I, that that clarity, I think, is really helpful, and that's what I think people have to think through: is where, where, where do we talk? When? How do we talk about him becoming sin? In, in yeah. what sense and when? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think if we understand. It in covenantal terms, particularly uh, by way of imputation as well, uh, is is if we understand that Christ, the whole Christ, the whole person in his entire in, in his entire birth, his life, and in his death as right as well as his time in the grave, that's you know his descending into hell, um, that that entire that entire life is the recipient of the imputation of our sin, but that. The nature of that imputation uh, is, is is in fact legal. I mean, that that's the legal part, right? Imputation um, is is a forensic category. So, what is imputed at that point then would be, uh, you know, would be legally the the, the sins of the elect uh, without his his flesh being touched by any type of corruption. So, you know, it's a mystery. I mean, you know, you you, you can't kind of, you know, put this in a systematic theology book so that <laughs> everything's perfectly lined up because there's there's an element of, you know, where our minds just come up against their own limitations and finitude. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, so you got to say two things at the same time. You have to say, yes, there is an imputation to to the whole Christ, to in his whole life of our sin. Uh, at the same time, his humanity is kept from any type of sinful corruption. Mm. Yes, on yeah, on the view that he doesn't assume fallen humanity. You're ab- you're absolutely right, and you're right. We're dealing with a mystery, and people have to um, try to decide what to do at, at what point. To, you know, at what point do you bow to the mystery? At what point do you try to say more? It's it's you know it's part of the task and privilege and and gravity of of theology to do such things and to mm. do it. I think I hope humbly. Well, Marcus, this has been a fascinating discussion. I know the listeners are probably going to scream out loud because, um, unfortunately, we're out of time. We have I have another recording lined up that I got to get to. Someone's calling me on Skype right now, and they don't understand what's going on. So, what we're going to do, I think, is is schedule a part two, and we're going to take our time and work through the wonderful material of this book. We have material on the order of salutis, justification, sanctification, adoption. And then we get into preservation, which is a very important chapter. And then there's some wonderful material on ecclesiology and sacramental theology, which I mentioned at the beginning of the recording. Um, so that that's going to come very soon. We'll try to do that in a, maybe the next episode or, or one shortly thereafter. Uh, Marcus, this has been just a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate your taking the time uh, to speak with us, and we appreciate you being really sharp on your feet. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. We're going to have you back. Again, the book titled here, One with Christ, an Evangelical uh, Theology of Salvation. It's published by Crossway recently, 2014. You can get a copy of this at WTSbooks.com, among other places. Uh, If you'd like to uh, learn more about uh, Reformed Forum, please visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about all of our programs as well 
is how to get in touch with us. One easy way is to tweet us at Reformed Forum. We thank you so much for listening. Uh, we encourage you to visit us online and to comment, discuss the episode, and we'll follow up with you. And we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.